All right, this uh, hearing will come to order. We're doing something entirely unique in the Senate, and that's actually starting on time and maybe even a little early. Uh, so uh, this may be a historic first in occasion. Uh, I don't know, as a, as a new member at least, I, this seems to be something that's of a historic you nature. You just violated the tradition of the United <laughs> States Senate. Senator Byrd would not be happy. <laughs> well, let me uh, again welcome all of you to the fifth hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia and Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy. Thank you very much for being here, and thank you to Senator Cardin for his cooperation and work and support for holding this very important hearing. Uh, the purpose of the hearing is to examine the trajectory of democracy in Southeast Asia. This region is critical to U.S. strategic and economic interests, but has for decades been ruled by authoritarian regimes, often creating tension for U.S. policymakers between advancing key national security objectives and pursuing our fundamental values of freedom and democracy in the region. In 1967, when the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, was formed, none of its six original members, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Brunei, were democracies. Uh, democracy started to take root in the region only in the 1980s and the 1990s, following the example of democratic transitions elsewhere in East Asia, most notably South Korea and Taiwan. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, by 2008, a region that was dominated by authoritarian regimes throughout the Cold War now looks significantly different. In its report on global freedom in 2009, Freedom House ranked the Philippines, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, and Timor-Leste as partly free nations and ranked Indonesia as free. While since there have been significant setbacks as well on the region's democratic path, most notably the return of the military rule in Thailand last year, there are also seemingly emerging success stories as well. The November 8th, 2015, just this, uh, earlier this month, elections in Myanmar or Burma, where Suu Kyi's uh, National League of Democracy party has swept to an overwhelming victory it gives us hope that democracy is still on the march in Southeast Asia. However, we should never overlook or oversimplify these challenges. Democracy is not only about the process of holding elections, it's about instituting the rule of law, enshrining checks and balances, and respecting fundamental freedoms of assembly and human rights. Uh, Burma, as well as other countries in the region, have a long way to go before that is the case. So while we look to the elections in Burma with hope, we must also ask the question whether a genuine democratic system can exist when the military has just simply reserved 25% of parliament seats without competition, has instituted blatantly discriminatory laws, or has disenfranchised whole segments of the population. So it's my hope that as we approach the ASEAN summit this week, uh, this weekend, this hearing can provide a thorough review, overview of the state of democracy in Southeast Asia and how U.S. policy can best encourage our partner nations in this critical region to follow the democratic path. With that, I'll turn to uh, Senator Cardin for his opening remarks. Senator Cardin, thank you. Well, uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for your leadership on this subcommittee. Uh, we know that East Asia and Pacific is a criti critically important part of our global strategies. And this hearing, I think, is particularly important as we talk about the democratic transition in Southeast Asia. During the past few decades, we've seen an incredible change in Southeast Asia from poverty and civil war and authoritarian governments to now tens of millions of people having opportunity. So we've seen a path that has been very positive over the last several decades. But having said that, there's been a concern of late that maybe that momentum is being lost. And perhaps there even is gonna be some backtracking on the progress that has been made for democracy and opportunity in Southeast Asia. I think all of us have to be concerned when we take a look at the Freedom House 2015 publication, Freedom in the World. 
The organization ranks six Southeast Asian countries, Brunei, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, Thailand, and Vietnam, as not free. And five countries, East Timor, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, and Singapore, as only partly free. And notably, not a single Southeast Asia country was characterized as free. Uh, so, so clearly, we have a challenge. And there's a question as to how we are progressing. It's clearly in the U.S. interest, and it's a strong component of our foreign policy objectives to, to, to ensure that democracy and human rights is a key factor in the countries that we have relations with. And I t take you back to the principles of Helsinki. I served many years and now the ranking Democrat on the Senate for the Helsinki Commission. But the principles of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe is based upon stability. How can we maintain stability among countries? And yes, countries have to be able to defend their borders. They have to have the capacity to do that. Countries need economic opportunity for its citizens. Economic future is one of the key ingredients for stability in a country. But basic human rights, how a country deals with the right of expression, how a country deals with corruption, how a country deals with free and fair elections are very much a part of whether there will be stability. You cannot have a military state and expect to have stability. It's not just because you have resource wealth that you'll become a stable country, as we've seen in too many countries around the world. So the attention on good governance, the attention on human rights must remain a key focus of our foreign policy. Now, it's hard to generalize, and it's not fair to compare one country to another. So I think each country is indeed unique. But clearly, there are countries that require our close attention. Burma, which on November 8th held its first contested national election since 1990, arguably the country has come a long way from the outright military dictatorship it was under for nearly 50 years. More than 90 political parties were registered to take part in the most recent elections, but just how transparent, inclusive, and credible were they? What can we expect in terms of transition in Burma over the next few months, over the long term? Is there anything more the United States can do for a smooth trans democratic transition in Burma as comp composed to one in which it chugs along both for making progress and then not? Second, I'd like to hear from our witnesses, the prospect for democracy in Thailand. Thailand, we've had a long relationship with this country. It's a longtime friend, U.S. Treaty ally for more than 60 years. This country that since 1932 has experienced 19 coups, 12 of them successful. Over a year has passed since the military overthrew their elected government. And the country continues to be ruled by Injunta. With the military-appointed National Reform Council rejecting their own draft constitution in early September, elections have again been postponed until early 2017, and we don't even know if they're going to make their early 2017 date. Third, I'd like to hear about Indonesia, Southeast Asia's largest country, the world's largest, third-largest democracy, and the world's most populous Muslim-majority countries, often one that has been heralded as having successfully transitioned from an authoritarian regime to one led directly elected uh, president. Is this country one that we should look to as a model, or is it too besieged by stalled reforms and continued interference in politics by the military? So there's good news and there's challenges. 
And I'm hopeful that this hearing can shed some light how the United States can use the tools that we have to encourage and hopefully accomplish a smooth transition in Southeast Asia to democratic institutions. Thank you, Senator Cardin. And with that, we'll turn to our first panel. Uh, our first witness is Mr. Scott Busby, who serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, where he oversees the Bureau's work in East Asia and the Pacific, as well as on multilateral and global issues, including U.S. engagement on human rights. And most recently, he served as Director for Human Rights on the National Security Council in the White House from 2009 to 2011, where he managed a wide range of human rights and refugee issues. Welcome, Mr. Busby. Thank you very much, and uh, look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Chairman Gardner, and thank you, Ranking Member Cardin, as well, for this opportunity to appear before you today to testify on the very, very important and timely issue of democratic transitions in Southeast Asia. <clears throat> uh, let me thank the subcommittee for its continued leadership in advancing U.S. interests and values and promoting overall engagement with the Asia-Pacific region. Your work serves as another high-profile demonstration of the expanded involvement of the United States in the region and an important reminder that human rights and democracy are universal values, not just American ones. The U.S. government's rebalance to Asia and the Pacific region recognizes that our future prosperity and security are inextricably tied to the region. It reflects the importance we place on our economic and strategic engagement as well as our strong support for advancing democracy, good governance, justice, and human rights. These goals, in our view, are mutually reinforcing elements of a unified strategy that at its core is about strengthening our relationships with the people of the region and their governments. When assessing democratic transition in the region, I think we agree with the assessment that both of you have offered, that there's some good news and there's some bad news. There are now more Southeast Asians living under democratic rule than was the case 30 years ago. Democracy has taken root in countries like the Philippines and Indonesia, and in countries like Burma, there have been important steps towards full democratic rule. At the same time, there is not so good news. In countries like Thailand, Cambodia, and Malaysia, we have seen backsliding of late. And of course, millions of other Southeast Asians in countries like Laos and Vietnam continue to live under repressive and authoritarian governments. So the democratic picture in the region is mixed. Nevertheless, we remain committed to the notion that effective and accountable governance and respect for the rule of law and human rights provide the foundation for long-term political stability and sustainable development, and thus they are a cornerstone of our approach to the region as a whole, just as they are in the rest of the world. Our democracy engagement in Southeast Asia is characterized by three key objectives. First, the strengthening of civil society. Second, encouraging government transparency and accountability. And third, increasing access to information. First, on strengthening civil society. Uh, in his remarks before the UN General Assembly in September, President Obama noted, quote, when civil society thrives, communities can solve problems that governments cannot necessarily solve alone, close quote. Southeast Asia is home to a vibrant and active civil society with which we work closely through efforts like the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative. 
We also employ grassroots results-oriented programming across the region to empower local civil society organizations. Our programs have trained labor activists, brought human rights principles to security forces, strengthened elections mechanisms, and empowered citizen journalists to connect, share, and publish their work. And our rapid response mechanisms have enabled us to provide immediate relief and assistance to both individual activists and civil society organizations when they are under threat. Still, the region has not been immune to the worldwide crackdown on civil society. In Thailand, for instance, the military regime has restricted civil liberties, including freedom of association, since seizing power in May 2014. And in Cambodia recently, the government adopted legislation limiting the ability of non-governmental organizations to operate freely. Despite these tightening restrictions on civil society, new tools have enabled governments to become more open and accountable in the region, which is our second goal for our engagement there. In the Philippines, for instance, grassroots participation in the planning and budgeting of poverty reduction programs in every one of its municipal and provincial governments has resulted in greater citizen involvement and better tailored policies for communities. The Philippines undertook this effort as a founding member of the Open Government Partnership, a multilateral initiative in which the United States and Indonesia were also founding members. We will continue to push to expand participation in the OGP initiative throughout the region. Nevertheless, we recognize that initiatives like OGP only work if citizens are able to share information open, openly and freely. This is why increasing access to information is the third element in our democracy strategy for the region. We believe that access to information and freedom of expression are important indicators of a democracy's health. A free and open internet, as well as an independent press, are instrumental to, for example, rooting out corruption and increasing government accountability. Governments in Southeast Asia are grappling with how to manage the flow of information with the explosive internet uh, growth, as well as new communication tools. And we are troubled by what appears to be backsliding in some countries on these issues. In Malaysia, for instance, approximately 30 government critics have been charged under its sedition law, a law, by the way, which Prime Minister Najib once publicly committed to eliminating. So we face challenges and opportunities in this area as well. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, the region encompasses a range of countries at different places in the transition to democracy, some moving in the right direction, others not. A common th thread between them, though, is that their people are increasingly demanding more from their governments, better services, more transparency, and a greater role in the fundamental decisions that shape their lives. The Department of State will continue to support these aspirations, and backed by congressional support, we believe that democracy can further take root and expand throughout the region. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Busby. And our next witness is Mr. James Crusoe, who serves as Acting Deputy Secretary of State at the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Most recently, Mr. Crusoe served as the Counselor for Economic Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Jakarta and as Director of the State Department Office responsible for relations with the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei, Singapore, and East Timor. Mr. Crusoe, thank you. Look forward to your testimony. Thank you very much, Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Cardin. It's a real pleasure to be here to have the privilege to testify before you today. 
Promoting democracy and human rights is an integral part of our daily diplomacy in Southeast Asia, particularly, of course, in countries that are either not democracies or where democracy is fragile. 30 years ago, as you've mentioned, democracies are few and far between in Southeast Asia, but now a majority of Southeast Asians live in democracies in places like the Philippines, Indonesia, and Timor-Leste, and others have made progress towards a democratic path. In all of these places, the people of those nations, of course, deserve most of the credit. They are the ones who ousted the authoritarian regimes. But the United States strongly supported all of these democratic transitions. At all of our embassies, it's one of the things we do and take pride in. Uh, I will talk uh, briefly about what we were doing in some very different places that you asked about, Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, and the Philippines. In Burma, as you mentioned, millions of people voted for the first time in November 8 elections, seizing the opportunity to move one step closer to a democracy that respects the will and rights of all. International and domestic observers confirmed the conduct of the elections were largely peaceful, transparent, and credible. While the elections were an important step forward, they were imperfect due to structural and systemic impediments. Looking ahead, we believe a peaceful post-elections period is critical to maintaining stability and the confidence of the people. It will be important for all political leaders to work together as the new government is formed and to engage in meaningful dialogue as they tackle the huge challenges that face the country. We remain committed to supporting democratic reform in Burma, and our continuous senior-level engagement has reflected this. In Thailand, a longtime friend and treaty ally, we have stood for democracy there throughout the past decade of political turmoil, our message to the government since the coup just over a year and a half ago has been clear. We are eager to see our bilateral relationship restored to its fullest potential, but this could only happen when democratic civilian government is restored. Until then, we will hold back certain assistance that has been suspended since the coup. However, we will continue to cooperate with the Thai on regional and global issues that serve U.S. interests, such as health, law enforcement, trafficking, climate change, and regional security. In our interactions with the Thai, we have repeatedly stressed that it is vital for Thailand to have an inclusive political process and to fully restore civil liberties. This is essential to the open debate the country needs to have about its political future. In my third example, Malaysia, we were pleased to see Malaysians across the political spectrum engaged in the 2013 electoral process in large numbers with unprecedented enthusiasm, but we publicly noted then our concerns about opposition access to the media. Soon after the elections, the government arrested several opposition leaders under the Sedition Act, a law the Prime Minister had publicly promised to repeal. Since June 2015, when the Prime Minister became embroiled in corruption allegations, the human rights situation has rapidly trended downward. We are increasingly troubled and have been increasingly vocal about the continued use of national security laws to harass and occasionally imprison government critics, including Abraham Anwar Ibrahim, the leader of the opposition. Finally, in the Philippines, corruption and poverty continue to be major concerns. But President Aquino has pursued a reform agenda that has delivered tangible results for the people. Our wide range of official assistance to the Philippines further strengthens the country's democratic institutions. Mr. Chairman, we admire all that so many people in Asia have done to promote democracy and good governance while recognizing that so much remains to be done. In our everyday diplomacy, we will continue to do all we can as a friend and as a reliable partner to support efforts to build and strengthen democracy, and we appreciate the work of this committee supporting these efforts. Finally, let me emphasize that trade and investment, especially TPP, are important both to support the U.S. economy and to our efforts to promote democracy in the region. Thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Caruso. Thank you again, Mr. Busby, as well. We'll proceed to, to questions now. Uh, the, Mr. Busby, is, as the leader of the Bureau for Democracy Human Rights at the State Department, um, how do you think the elections, what, 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 the elections in Burma, uh, how do you think that affects the, the path to democracy? What happens over the next several months? What do you anticipate over the next year? And what do you anticipate the U.S. reaction to these elections being? Well, we thought the elections were, uh, you know, significant, meaningful step 
forward. Um, that doesn't mean we thought they were fully free and fair. As you yourself noted, 25% uh, of the seats in the parliament are still reserved for the military. Uh, 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 many uh, citizens, not citizens, many residents in Burma were prevented from voting, uh, most of them Rohingya, which is very problematic for us and for the international community. And many would-be candidates for parliament were disqualified under opaque and seemingly arbitrary procedures. So there were significant problems with this election. That said, the Burmese people turned out in great numbers with great passion uh, and returned a resounding victory for uh, the National League for Democracy. Um, we think this is a significant step forward. Obviously, there's a lot more to be done in terms of the negotiations between the NLD and the military and the other uh, political parties in Burma, um, but we think it's a significant step forward. What do you think needs to happen in Burma over the next uh, month as these transitions take place? Or maybe perhaps what we don't want to see out of Burma over the next month uh, as they proceed to the section of the president? I mean, I think we need to first uh, ensure that uh, the military and the powers that be in Burma do allow uh, the NLD uh, to take power uh, in the parliament. Uh, we need to ensure that um, no irreversible decisions are made by now the lame duck parliament that ties the hands uh, of the incoming parliament. Uh, and I think we need to see progress on addressing some of the key human rights uh, challenges in the country, uh, including release of political prisoners, um, uh, addressing the situation of the Rohingya, and trying to broaden the ceasefire uh, that has been negotiated with some of the ethnic armed groups, but not all. In, in terms of human rights issues, Rohingya, has the U.S. policy effectively, and we have about 140,000 estimates uh, in, in these camps, uh, refugees, has U.S. policy been effective in addressing this issue? Um, we continue to be concerned about the number of uh, Rohingya who remain in camps. That said, a process for resettling some of those people has begun quietly, um, which we think is a positive development. Um, but the fact that so many remain in camps continues to be of great concern to us. We raise the Rohingya at every opportunity and at the highest levels from pre President Obama on down. Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes was there uh, a month or so ago. He raised the issue. Assistant Secretary Russell was there before him. He raised the issue and my boss, Assistant uh, Secretary Malinowski has raised the issue on several occasions during his trips there, including during the human rights uh, dialogue. We also support efforts by the multilateral uh, community to highlight uh, our concern about the issue and uh, address the issue. Um, so we're doing what we can, but it's a tough, tough issue uh, within, within Burma, but we continue to press them. And uh, at the ASEAN summit coming up, Will this be addressed? And if so, what, what do you anticipate uh, the outcome? Um, I, you know, I, I can't speak for the president in advance of meetings that he'll have there, but uh, our concern about this issue has been one that he has repeatedly raised. He is personally seized with it, and I would be very surprised if he does not uh, take an opp the opportunity to raise it again with Burmese and other counterparts. And given the outcome of the election, if the monsoon season's ending, last uh, year we saw a number of um, the refugees fleeing and uh, the, the excuse me, Rohingya taking refugee yeah. approach, uh, fleeing in, in boats. Uh, 
we anticipate that perhaps again at the end of the monsoon season? And if so, what leverage can the U.S. exercise to try to address that given the outcome of the elections? Well, we, um, after the end of the last sailing season, um, U.S. government has undertaken a concerted effort with partners in the region, other governments as well as civil society, to do what we can to address um, this problem. Um, we have sought to identify uh, and target uh, uh, smugglers and traffickers engaged in this trade. We have pressed uh, the Burmese government to address the root causes of the Rohingya problem, and we have pressed other governments in the region to open their doors to those migrants who may uh, leave Burma. Hard to predict with any certainty uh, what will happen uh, this uh, sailing season, but it is an issue we're very uh, seized of and very much involved in trying to address. Mr. Crusoe. If I could, um, we just got a report today that uh, at this time of last year, about 13,000 Rohingya and other refugees, mainly Bangladeshi, had sailed to the south. This year, uh, international migration organization estimates only about 1,000. This is in uh, part because of the attention that was focused on it last year, but most especially the pressure we've put on the Thai to close these cro uh, crossings, the pressure we put on the Thai, Burmese, and the Bangladeshis to crack down on the smugglers. So clearly it's having some effect. I'd also note that in Thailand, there's going to be a second uh, conference on uh, irregular migration, I believe it's the first week in December. So it's also critical that the ASEAN nations have recognized the problem and are trying to work together to address it. In, in the second panel, the testimony of Mr. Ebert uh, talks about uh, the impact of U.S. pressure versus U.S. cooperation and how that can change the direction of, or how that can influence uh, nations in Southeast Asia. And the sentence that uh, was used in the statement that will be coming up says, generally the United States has the most impact as a champion of democracy in the region when it leads by example rather than by carrying a stick. And I was just wondering if you would want to to comment on that and how we use that perhaps, uh, if, if that is indeed the case, if you agree with it or not, but what that means for Thailand and other nations that seem to be heading in the wrong direction. I mean, I would say globally, serving as an example is the best way to spark change on human rights or on other issues uh, around uh, the world. Um, I, I'm hesitant to generalize about what policies have been most effective in what countries. I mean, I think in the case of Burma, for instance, the fact that there were sanctions uh, there, a significant sanctions regime, did play a significant role in helping to spark uh, change there. Um, but I'd be hesitant to say as a general matter that uh, carrots or sticks, you know, have been more effective uh, uh, than one or the other. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. Crusoe, do you care to comment on that? Yeah, each, each country's situation really is different. In Thailand, for instance, it's very clearly we have uh, taken actions that focus on the military since the military is the source of the problem. But we want to maintain the incredibly close ties we have with the people of Thailand, the business community of Thailand. So we're trying to organize ourselves to have the most influence uh, without affecting our long-term relationships. Thank you, Mr. Christopher. Senator Cardin. Well, let me, let me again thank both of you for uh, you're not only your being here today, but for your, your work in this field. It would be wonderful if just the U.S. example uh, would be enough to change behavior uh, among those who have power. The, the challenge is in Burma, of course, there was such obvious oppression 
uh, in a military state that it was pretty easy for Congress to identify progress that had to be made in order to get to any type of a, uh, of a, uh, a normal relationship uh, with the country. And uh, that was, I want to it was a pretty clear mandate, and uh, Burma is making progress, and uh, the, we hope we'll see the day where we will not need any of those uh, uh, types of sanctions. Uh, corruption's a little bit more difficult. You have countries who have um, basically been built on corruption under totalitarian authoritarian states. So the corruption is so widespread it's very difficult to figure out how uh, you can identify when people think it's a way of life to, to pay off in order to go to school or to pay off in order to get a job. Um, United Nations is now develop, uh, now established in their millennia, in their uh, development goals, uh, good governance uh, at the uh, leadership of the U.S. in order to promote that particular uh, millennia uh, uh, development goal objective. Uh, what can we do more to enforce anti-corruption initiatives among uh, the Southeast Asian countries? Uh, there's not one that doesn't have a significant problem with corruption. And uh, we seem to always put that last on our agenda. What can we do more to, to fight corruption in that region? You know, Senator, uh uh, my father is an immigrant from Greece, and the reason he left Greece was because the corruption was so bad. So 2,000 years after finding democracy and inventing it, he couldn't get past the corruption there. So it's a problem throughout history, and it's certainly a problem in these emerging democracies. In Indonesia, I spoke to a university, uh, must have been 500 people in the audience, students, and I asked them what the biggest problem in the country was, and they said corruption. And they asked me what they could do about it, and I said, don't pay. Take a picture of someone who asked for a bribe and put it on the internet. Do whatever you need to do. And I'm afraid the answer was they laughed because that's the way things are done. So the question is how do you change a culture of corruption? And one thing we've been trying to do is to talk about our FCPA and how it works and why it's important and why doing business with American companies will protect bureaucrats who sign contracts with us because they say we will protect you by making sure our companies abide by your laws against corruption. But it's a long-term process of changing expectations. Uh, and while um, the U.S. as an example may not be sufficient, in this case, I think it's probably the best tool we have while we encourage these countries to reform their judiciary to try corrupt practices, um, encourage their participation in open government programs and other things. But it's, it's going to be a long haul, I'm afraid. I, I would point out one thing you could do at state is work within the bureaucracies of the Department of State to put a higher priority on the damage of corruption. Uh, we've been urging, working with Transparency International, to develop uh, a standards where we can report on the status of any corruption uh, in the countries of the world. We do that with trafficking in persons. We think we need to have an index where when an ambassador comes and meets with me, I always have the tip report in front of me so I can go over what they're doing on trafficking. We should have a similar effort on corruption. Because I, I agree with you. 
We're never going to totally eliminate trafficking. We're never going to totally eliminate corruption. But we can do a much better job on both. And there are universal standards. We know that an independent judiciary, we know that an independent prosecutor, we know that uh, having laws against bribery, uh, we know that financing these operations so that they have adequate resources, uh, we know all that are indications of a country serious about fighting corruption. We also know that this is a global problem. What happened in Amidon, what happened in Ukraine was very much aimed at people very angry and frustrated as your father was in Greece as to what they were seeing among their government. They wanted an honest opportunity in Ukraine. It wasn't so much Russia versus Europe, it was their country wasn't giving them the services that they wanted. And they, 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 they decided they had enough. Uh, my original point about security, you're not going to have security unless you deal with these issues. But I really don't think the State Department's put a priority on this. Am I wrong? I mean, there is a lot of work going on at the Department on corruption, Senator, and my boss, as you may know, is quite seized of the, the issue as well and recognizes that uh, for purpose of democratization, uh, as Jim has also mentioned, corruption is often at the top of the list of issues that citizens want uh, to be addressed. Um, one thing we are doing at the State Department is sanctions vis-a-vis -vis corruption. There is an executive order that authorizes us to sanction individuals who we believe are engaged in corruption. There's an active process of trying to identify uh, individuals who can be sanctioned uh, under that executive order. And to go back to the issue of transparency I mentioned earlier, um, one of the things that can be done through the internet uh, uh, and through other information sharing devices is shine a light on corruption where it occurs. Uh, there's a wonderful app, I think you call it, called I Pay to Bribe. I don't know how, how popular it is in Southeast Asia, but I know that in India and Kenya and places like that, it allows citizens who, when they experience corruption, to immediately publicize it. And I know that that has had an impact uh, in some countries around the world, and it is something that we should, I think, continue to support and encourage. There are good people at State Department trying to do the right thing. I just would urge that we have to figure out a way to break through the bureaucracy of the State Department to make this a, a much higher priority than it, than it is today. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to ask one other question, if I might, on, as it relates to, to Thailand. How much patience do we have here? Uh, this is a country where we have a long relationship with. We have a strategic partnership where I understand every country in the world we have some degree of strategic partnership with, and perhaps North Korea, I'll leave out in Iran, but just about every country we have reason to want to have a good relationship with. And Thailand is certainly a country that we want to have a good relationship with. But how can we condone uh, the lack of progress in this country towards a democratic rule? been the policy of this country a long time, that we don't acknowledge coups. And we're not, don't get me wrong. But um, it's been a long time now. And the progress seems to be moving at a snail's pace. So why aren't we more aggressive with our friends in Thailand? It's been incredibly frustrating working with our Thai friends. As you noted before, they said they had a roadmap and a new constitution, and they scrapped it. On the other hand, from what they wrote, it was worth scrapping. They're also negotiating these, these new rules without reference to civil society. And we keep telling the government, unless you bring in all parts of the country and have this uh, understood by all, 
It's not going to be what you want. Um, as I mentioned before, we're, we are trying to target the pressure, and, and it's having an effect in terms of you see uh, the Thai leadership now almost begging for our understanding. Of course, unless they do something about it, so what? We continue to pressure them. We continue to encourage them. We continue to reach out to civil society and uh, the political leadership from the civilian days. Um, we have regular meetings. Uh, our new ambassador there met with the leader of the Democrat Party, with the Thai Party. A group of uh, former parliamentarians was just here a couple of weeks ago uh, from all parties on a, one of our IVLP programs. Um, and it was great because they said it's their only opportunity to get together and talk about politics. So we're trying to build up civil society and we're trying to create an environment where change can be made. But the Thai polity is in a state of stasis and we're finding it hard to convince them to take, to take the courageous step for them of writing a new constitution, let the people's will be decide the future. That sounds like a dip, good diplomatic answer, and I, you're well well trained in diplomacy. Uh, when you run for the Senate, you give up diplomacy. <laughs> uh, I know it's tough, but I, I, I think Thailand is just too important of a country and too close to us to allow uh, this to just sort of meander without a clear path forward, and I don't see a path forward at this particular moment, and uh, that's very frustrating. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, and I think we'll go for maybe 10 more minutes on this panel or so, if you could, then go to the second panel, but uh, just to pick up where, where Senator Cardin left off on that, I mean, the Constitution that was written was scrapped. Uh, it was, of course, written by a group of people who were appointed by uh, the junta to, to, to put it together. The new draft is being written by somebody who's also been appointed by uh, the junta to do it, I believe, chairing the, the committee to do this. I mean, is there, you can't have a constitution that's written that's effective at that point, can you? The theory is that at the end of whatever they write, it will be put through a referendum. And I guess there's certain hope if it's not truly a democratic piece of paper, uh, the people vote against it. But of course... Then, then the rule just continues as that, it is. And that's exactly our concern, that does it keep rolling this down, down the road? Um, which is why our, our main ask of them right now is keep to the schedule and bring in civil society to help write the document. Otherwise, it's not going to stand uh, the smell test. And they hear us a nod. Yeah. So, so it's a conversation we had about sort of uh, the carrots and sticks and the leverage that I asked about in Burma and others. Uh, looking at Thailand, either from leverage or from a carrot and stick point of view, uh, if we start asserting leverage, if we start asserting sticks in terms of trying to sway behavior, uh, what impact does, does China have on sort of that relationship with Thailand right now, and how does that affect the usefulness of carrots and sticks or leverage? Well, Thailand tries to use the leverage of China on us, saying don't push us too hard. Um, but there are two things. One, we have our principles. Two, we have understanding that the long-term stability of Thailand depends on democratic rule, regardless of any short-term shift to China. And third, we have historical context, which is Thailand has always played its role as uh, setting off regional powers against each other, which is how they stayed independent during the colonial period. So um, 
we listen with some concern to their uh, statements about China, uh, but I don't think it changes our policy a whole, a whole lot. And so right now, I mean, in terms of looking out the scenario for military rule, it's, is it indefinite in, in, in the point of view right now? I mean, there's no sort of, by 2017, 2018, 2019, we think things will change, the Constitution's approved. We're, we're trying to take them at the word that 2017 is the next date, and we keep telling them that you can't keep delaying that, you know, this date indefinitely because your people will not accept it over time. Um, but, you know, the society is going through transition, and that's what they keep telling us. Uh, and it's partially an excuse, but having lived in Thailand, there, there's a certain truth to it. As the society developed, as rural Thais demanded a voice in their uh, country and their economy, the elite urban Thais uh, resisted, and they're going through dealing with this. This isn't to condone it, it's to try and uh, tell you what they see as their problem. Thank you, Mr. Crusoe. Uh, Senator Cardin. Uh, again, uh, again, thanks. Let, let me turn to Malaysia, if I might, for one moment, because I don't want to lose this opportunity with the two of you before our committee. Malaysia has been uh, elevated in relationship with the United States as a TPP partner. Uh, they uh, got a rather generous uh, evaluation in the trafficking in persons report uh, being taken off of the tier three. They have a very serious problem with trafficking, which is acknowledged in the trafficking in persons report, the TIP report. Corruption is still a major, major problem in Malaysia, and now we're talking about having a trade agreement with Malaysia. Uh, what should we be expecting uh, during the next six months in Malaysia? Uh, that's the period of time that many of us will have a chance to evaluate before we vote on, TIP, on TPP. Uh, it will be uh, a period of time in which uh, we have, I think, maximum leverage. So what do we expect? What, what, give me a roadmap of what I should be asking in regards to changes in Malaysia. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Malaysia has been, uh, from Najib's election, a disappointment because we expected so much from him. Uh, but especially since charges of corruption against Prime Minister Najib about six months ago, they've really been going downhill on, on civil rights. And We've told them this repeatedly from, from the highest levels, and President Obama is going to tell the Prime Minister about our concerns again this weekend when he meets with him. I would argue that TPP is actually a very useful tool for TIP because under the labor standards chapter of TPP, they have to rewrite laws and ensure they have new rules for labor, including trafficking in persons, to comply with uh, the rules for TPP. Until they get those passed and implemented, TPP won't apply to them. So that's within the next six months on the TIP aspect. As far as the political situation, we keep and will continue to keep meeting with the, the government of Malaysia and encouraging them to not use sedition and anti-terrorism laws against political opponents, to stop violating free speech, and to open up the society. And if they don't, what should we do? All I can say is we will continue to encourage them, sir. 
You got that diplomatic, the diplomacy down so well. <laughs> I used to be a banker, so I had to get retrained. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd point out as well that there is a specific consistency plan as to Malaysia, as there is to Brunei and Vietnam as well, that lays out the very specific commitments uh, or the very specific things that the government of Malaysia has to do in order for TPP to come into effect. So I think we've taken account of some of the specificity in the Malaysia context to try to deal with that through TPP. There are many aspects to TPP, and we're not going to get into a debate about that, but I do agree with you that I think Ambassador Froman did do a, a, a good job on the enforcement issues in Malaysia and Vietnam and, uh, in regards to the implementation and the failure to do so, the specific trade sanctions that will not, or trade relief that will not be granted. So I, I did note that. But having said that, there's a lot more to dealing with a, a country that lacks the same degree of democratic institutions that we're dealing with a trade agreement to make sure that the good governance issues are embedded uh, before the TPP goes into effect. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, thank you. And just one last question uh, for this panel, for me, and then I, if you want to have one too, just, just be quick. Uh, can you uh, talk a little bit about Southeast Asia, the region, South China Sea, Mr. Crusoe? Uh, in very general terms. Please. Huh. Well, this is, of course, uh, the big geostrategic issue of the region. And what we've been working on is uh, trying to unify ASEAN as a collective uh, to push back against Chinese expansionism. Um, we've been trying to get China to uh, agree to a halt with ASEAN claimant states, to no more reclamation, no more construction, and no militarization. In fact, when President uh, Xi was in the Rose Garden, he announced there would be no militarization of the features that they've established. Now they've, Chinese unfortunately, busily walked that back. Um, but we keep citing that, we keep encouraging our ASEAN friends to keep reminding the Chinese of that commitment. Um, but it is uh, an issue we take very, very seriously and work literally every day. And with the meetings this weekend, do you anticipate any, uh, what outcome on the South China Sea um, I can tell you it will be discussed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the first panel for your participation today, and uh, I truly appreciate your time and, and uh, your work. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And if we could be joined now by the, the second panel. Our first witness is Ambassador Mark Green, who serves as the president of the International Republican Institute. Ambassador Green served as U.S. Ambassador to Tanzania from 2007 to 2009. Uh, prior to serving as U.S. Ambassador, uh, Mr. Green served four terms in the U.S. House of Representatives representing Wisconsin's 8th District. Uh, welcome, Ambassador Green. Thank you very much for uh, your time, your service, and your opportunity to, and our opportunity to learn from you today. Thank you. And members of the committee, you think I would know that by now? Uh, the International Republican Institute is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that works in about 90 countries around the world promoting democracy. Eight of those countries are in Southeast Asia. I think it is safe to say that no region of the world these days is at once more challenging and more promising than that region, Southeast Asia. In my brief remarks this morning, and 
uh, obviously have a more extended written testimony. I'd like to discuss very briefly those countries where challenges remain and then point to a few countries where there is progress and there is hope and some reason for optimism. To begin with, uh, unfortunately, there are countries, as the previous panel alluded to, that are suffering from constricting civil society space and democratic backsliding. And perhaps the clearest example, as, uh, as you yourself have alluded to, is Thailand, where a May 2014 military coup has severely curtailed the space for civil society and for political discourse. What had been a strong flame for democracy and liberty sadly is reduced to just a few embers. The highly anti-democratic process the government is using to draft a new constitution is very troubling. The first drafting committee, whose members were handpicked by the military, submitted a draft charter, which was rejected in September, meaning that they will have military rule until at least 2017. The prime minister, a former general who helped to orchestrate that 2014 coup, has appointed a new drafting committee which is being led by a figure who himself was instrumental in that coup. It is hard to be optimistic about the results of the new constitution drafting committee. Thailand currently bans international assistance to political parties. I think it's short-sighted, and I think it serves to stunt democratic progress. We would strongly urge that the U.S. press for an end to this ban at once. Now, Thailand isn't alone, as you've noted, in repressing or attempting to weaken democratic institutions. Malaysia has seen new infighting among opposition coalition parties, and the ruling coalition has sharply reduced opportunities for compromise. Worse yet, it has taken steps to restrict the movement of democracy activists. Again, Mr. Chairman, we strongly urge the State Department to make this a central part of diplomatic discussions. Malaysia must end these restrictions on democracy activists as soon as possible, and make it very clear that these activists are not a threat to Malaysian government. Instead, they are a resource to the government and an opportunity to advance democratic norms. Cambodia is another country which is missing opportunities to foster democracy. The longtime ruling Cambodian People's Party has used the legal system to stifle dissent from opposition lawmakers, including the recent issuance of an arrest warrant for longtime opposition leader Sam Ramsey. The opposition finds itself struggling to consolidate its own message and to leverage its modest political powers in the face of these actions. It needs help from an active and organized civil society. The U.S. should stand ready to help with strong democracy assistance to support um, these institutions, to strengthen these organizations, and again, it should be a central part of our diplomatic engagement. As to Laos, Mr. Chairman, while that government has long been repressive and hostile to democratic engagement, in 2009, the Lao Prime Minister issued a decree permitting nonprofit associations to exist. We at IRI have been working closely with several of them. Given that next year, President Obama will be traveling to Laos when it hosts the ASEAN Summit, it seems that this is an opportune moment for the administration to push for a stronger role for groups like IRI and others to foster democracy and to strengthen civil society. Again, there are reasons for hope. Interestingly, with respect to both of the countries which I do think provide reasons for hope, their most recent major elections were conducted at a time when many outside observers were skeptical. And yet, 
they showed that people do want a voice in their own future and that civil society, when given a chance, can play a constructive role and create real hope and promise and opportunity. Indonesia, as was mentioned in the previous panel, is still battling uh, issues of corruption. The U.S. should stand at Indonesia's side and should promote uh, assistance that helps to empower local NGOs to take on the issue of corruption. And we should also, as we do with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, make it clear that we view corruption as a central part of any assistance relationship that we're going to have. And finally, Mr. Chairman, with respect to Burma, while there is a long way to go, I think the words of Anyan Suu Kyi were quite fair with respect to this election. She said these elections were fair, but they were certainly not free. They were fair in the sense that they probably expressed the view of most Burmese. And now we see that the NLD has the majority it needs to make a real difference. Of course, they face tremendous challenges. And I think, again, one more time, that we should stand with them to help build the capacity to take on those challenges and to be far more inclusive in the society that they foster and forge going forward. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ambassador, for your testimony. Our next witness is Mr. Murray Ebert, who serves as Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the Sumitro Chair for Southeast Asia Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Prior to joining CSIS, he was Senior Director for Southeast Asia at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, where he worked to promote trade and investment opportunities between the United States and Asia. Welcome, Mr. Ebert. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Gartner and Ranking Member Cardin. It's a real pr privilege to be here to talk about the uh, most important region of the world, Southeast Asia. Uh, it's, uh, as uh, I, uh, you know, if you're what the fourth speaker, it's kind, I think all of us are probably going to roughly conclude that Southeast Asia has a very mixed picture on the human rights front. I think uh, over the last two weeks, we've had a lot of excitement coming out of Myanmar, Burma. It, um, but of course, uh, that election was flawed. Uh, and the biggest challenges are yet before us. We've played one inning of the game and we have eight innings to go in terms of seeing how the military uh, responds to her election, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's election, um, how, how they uh, move forward with the ethnic minorities, treatment of the Rohingya and, and a raft of other problems. The, the, and, and as uh, uh, the previous speakers also said, Indonesia is a pretty good story. Uh, over the last decade, it has moved forward with uh, becoming a model in the region for orderly transfers of power and multi-party democracy. That doesn't mean it doesn't have rafts of problems. We, you were earlier talked about corruption. Uh, there's uh, minorities facing discrimination uh, and, and those kinds of things. The other, the other pretty good story is the Philippines, which I guess uh, I called in my report a middling democracy. It's, their elections are fairly fair and free, but vote buying is pretty widespread. The, uh, a lot of the politics is run by, by political dynasties, and they have a very poor regulatory environment, widespread corruption, etc. cetera. Um, Vietnam, uh, it's still run very much by uh, an authoritarian communist uh, party. Uh, but yet, the situation probably, it has eased over the last uh, decade or so. Uh, and interestingly, uh, in the, this year, no bloggers seem to have been arrested. Uh, National Assembly plays a bigger role. And we saw in the negotiations uh, for the TPP that Vietnam agreed to allow a, a free labor union. And if they don't, uh, they're going to not get the benefits of tariff reductions. 
We've talked quite a bit about Thailand already. Uh, obviously, that country has slipped back miserably. Uh, and so has Malaysia, as, uh, as our previous speaker said. You know, but as in, in the differences on Thailand and Malaysia, two countries I've actually worked in, lived and worked in, uh, the differences now between previous authoritarian times is that the population just demands so much more. And in the long run, Thailand, uh, the, the junta in Thailand and Najib and the ruling uh, coalition in Malaysia really are going to just have nothing but grief if they don't respond to the demands for more freedom, less corruption, uh, as people uh, are much more aware, are much more educated and much more aware. So I, I've got to be hopeful there. Uh, in the long run, not tomorrow. Uh, on US, you asked specifically uh, to talk about policy toward Thailand, and some of this has already been addressed. State really cut back on, on, uh, uh, on military assistance, but kept a lot of the other engagement. And I would argue that that's roughly the right mix for Thailand. You can only push them so hard. Uh, they are really important to the U.S. at all kinds of levels. There's a lot that happens with Thailand in terms of Cobra Gold, a lot that happens. At so it's one of the biggest embassies, a lot of uh, health cooperation, a lot of cooperation within ASEAN, and the U.S. really risks uh, damaging some of its strategic interests if it pushes Thailand too hard, because pushing harder isn't going to get us any further. And uh, uh, you asked also, uh, also asked me to talk a bit about pressure versus cooperation, and you quoted me earlier. I guess uh, on, uh, what I'd say on, on pressure on, on, on Myanmar, Burma, I, I think the sanctions certainly pushed them. But had the U.S. insisted on keeping the sanctions in place that were in place until 2011, 2012, the elections wouldn't have been possible. What made it possible is the beginning of engagement. Uh, and so that they realized, they realized they were being left behind and that they really, to benefit from global integration, they had to move. And so that was, I think the U.S. can, obviously a lot of domestic stakeholders were important, but the U.S. Uh, played some role by starting to engage them. Uh, and the same is actually true of Vietnam. Uh, they're moving, liberalizing, not democratizing, but liberalizing, thanks to increased engagement. On the, uh, uh, you know, and then finally on the U.S. approach in the region, uh, uh, you know, I, I think uh, some of the aid uh, that uh, Jim and, and uh, Jim Caruso and, and uh, Mr. Busby alluded to earlier on in terms of USAID projects in, in Burma, on building capacity in developing rule of law and transparent governance, robust civil society have had a significant, played a significant role. And same in, in Vietnam, and we're now starting to see uh, the Vietnamese National Assembly be open to having advisors in the, in the National Assembly on revising the country's criminal code. You were asked also if there are any final uh, recommendations uh, of change of policy. I guess one thing I would say is if the military keeps moving in Myanmar, and that's an if, I would really uh, emphasize the if, if it keeps moving uh, at some point and, and cooperating with Aung San Suu Kyi and with the minority, uh, armed minority groups, uh, at some point we have to consider letting them benefit from, letting them see the benefits of longer term cooperation and starting to talk to them, not giving them IMET or, or FMF, but beginning to talk to them more. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Ebert. Um, our next uh, witness and our final witness on the second panel is uh, Ms. Kelly Curie, who serves as a senior fellow with the Project 2049 Institute. Ms. Curie is also the founding director of the Institute's Burma Transition Initiative. Uh, 
previously served as Asia Policy Advisor to the Undersecretary for Democracy and Global Affairs and as Foreign Policy Advisor to then-Representative John Porter from Illinois. Welcome and thank you for your testimony today. Thank you, Chairman Gardner and Ranking Member Cardin for giving me the opportunity to come and speak at this important and timely hearing today. I'm going to focus my remarks on Burma since I just returned from there and do a little bit of a deeper dive on that country since Murray did such a great job covering the waterfront in the region. Um, but I will be happy to address other countries and the broader region during the Q&A. After working in support of democracy and human rights in Burma for much of the past 20 years, including as a young congressional staffer, it was profoundly affecting for me to be in Burma for the November 8th elections. It's hard to overstate the NLD's accomplishment in achieving a governing majority despite all the barriers that were erected to keep them from doing so. And it's something for which the NLD, its leader Dong San Suu Kyi, and the Burmese people deserve tremendous credit. It has been a source of constant amusement and frustration to me how many outside and internal observers within Burma have consistently underestimated how strong the NLD is in Burma, how well organized it was at the grassroots level and how deeply integrated into the communities there and how well they knew their electorate. It also has been a source of, of frustration how the experts have completely underestimated just how frustrated the Burmese people were with living under the rule of the military government, both direct and indirect. I think that these election results are a clear repudiation of the military's rule in Burma for the past 60 years and the role that they've played in destroying a once thriving and potentially very wealthy country in the region. The NLD, I, but I have to say we're not out of the woods yet. The NLD and others have filed complaints about large and suspicious tranches of out-of-constituency advance votes in Shan and Kachin states. And yesterday there was an announcement by the Union Election Commission or by someone in the senior ranks of the USDP that they could be filing complaints against up to 100 NLD candidates with regard to try to disqualify them from the election. So how the, I don't think we can give the Union Election Commission a passing grade, which some have already done with regard to these elections, without credible investigations into both the serious allegations on the out-of-constituency advance voting and how they dispose of these um, potential complaints against NLD candidates, which are likely to be quite specious. The other dark cloud that hangs over this election is the legacy of disenfranchisement of Burma's Muslim population, both as candidates and voters. The USDP's despicable effort to use anti-Muslim sentiment as a political weapon seems to have backfired in the near term, but let's not, let, let's not fool ourselves that the sentiments that they tapped into or hope to tap into have disappeared. The situation remains very tense in Burma, and it will be a generational project to build a more tolerant society. The forces of intolerance, such as Mabatha, the Association for the Protection of Race and Religion, will regroup and adapt and leadership that seeks to heal divisions rather than exploit them will be critical in stemming the influence of these forces going forward. While the Tamada and the USDP leadership have repeatedly stated their commitment to turn over power to the NLD in accordance with the law, and these are the key words, in accordance with the law, exactly how this will happen remains to be seen. President Thane Sein and the Commander-in-Chief Min Online have delayed meetings with Aung San Suu Kyi to discuss the transition until the end of the year, and we have seen little in the way of conciliatory behavior up to now. People continue to be, uh, pol political prisoners continue to be held, offensives against ethnic nationalities continue, 
and humanitarian access continues to be problematic in, Chin, in Shan State, Kachin State, and in Rakhine State. In the near term, we need to express our clear expectation to the lame duck, lame duck government that they should immediately take steps to address these three issues. It's within their power, and they can do this very easily in the next four months before they um, give up power in April, if they do. Looking ahead to April 16, I think we need to think about how U.S. policy should be adjusted to account for Burmese, Burma's evolving political situation. But I think we also need to consider the problems that were created by our own moves away from a principled approach toward a more pragmatic approach in Burma. I frequently heard from civil society and political um, democratic friends how frustrated they were with the United States appearing to move so close to the Thainsang government over the past five years and how they felt often abandoned by the United States as a result. They were also deeply concerned by the way that the U.S. carried out its assistance programs in Burma, appearing to um, privilege relationships with the government and with large NGOs rather than working to support real civil society at the grassroots levels. These are serious issues issues that we need to think about going forward as we try to help consolidate democracy in Burma. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks again for uh, all of your testimonies. Uh, Ms. Curry, I'll, I'll just start where you left off uh, on Burma. Ask the first panel what needs to happen, what doesn't need to happen over the next several months as Burma moves forward through this election process to finalize the selection of the president. What, what do you see happening, what needs to happen, and what are you concerned could happen? I would like to see us have very clear demands with the lame duck government over the next four months that they immediately release all political prisoners, including those who are awaiting trial and have yet to be sentenced. This includes two people who have recently been arrested just in the past month for postings on Facebook, who have been denied bail, who are sitting in prison because they put pictures up on Facebook that were mildly satirical. This is absurd. Um, this also includes student groups, um, uh, student demonstrators who were arrested in February and still have not been sentenced. Many of them are on, have been on hunger strikes. They were tortured and abused very badly when they were arrested, their immediate release would send a very strong signal that the regime is committed to moving forward with Burma's um, democratic transition. Second, the offensives in Shan and Kachen State, which have actually escalated since Election Day, need to be stopped immediately. They're targeting civilian populations or at least indiscriminately attacking minority positions in these areas and causing massive civilian displacement and casualties. This needs to be halted and they, it's fully within their power to do that. And the third issue, as I mentioned, humanitarian access has been spotty in Kachin and Shan. You have thousands of IDPs in Kachin State in particular who have no access to humanitarian assistance because they are outside of government-controlled areas, and the U.S. has not done enough to get basic humanitarian assistance to these people. Likewise, the situation of the Rohingya and Rakhine State is just deplorable. It continues to deteriorate um, while the numbers of people taking to the sea this year have not been as um, inflated as they were last year. There are The situation there has not materially improved for them. There is plenty of space to open the aperture on humanitarian assistance there and to allow greater humanitarian access. Again, these are all things that are fully within the control of the authorities and would go a long way to helping us to be comfortable that they are sincere. Mr. Ebert, yes, please. Could I just add one thing? Yes. I, I agree with most uh, what, what Kelly said. I'd just like to add, uh, ye ye yesterday or the day before, uh, Tian Sein, the president, and the min military, military commander also said they would not meet with Aung San Suu Kyi until 
the, the 100 or so areas that they're going to contest the election or some, something that happened in the election. And once they initiate the appeal, there is no deadline by when the, um, the, um, uh, they have to res the U Union Election Commission has to resolve the issue. So they, if they're going to keep delaying, as they can, with the, with the terms that they've set out, it's, it's a recipe for unending um, dispute and, and just no transition by, by the April 1st deadline that Kelly lined up. Thank what do you think we ought to be doing? I mean, how, how should we respond to that? What message should we be sending? What action should we be taking? I think we need to suggest to them that they should meet in a decent interval, whether they have to meet this week or next, I don't know. But to wait till everything is resolved when it's very clear who won this election is kind of crazy and it's gonna just leave the country in limbo. They're lame ducks and not ruling, she can't rule. The country's, you're gonna have the military doing the offensives that Kelly talked about in Kachin and Sean. It's, uh, uh, so I think we need to put a little pressure on them, which the US has a, quite a bit of clout with them. Uh, in terms of pressing them to to try to live up to some of what they said earlier they would do. Have you seen the State Department, uh, State Department's obviously aware of this, but I mean, have you seen any actions that they have taken so far, or do they need a little push on this? I don't know. There, there hasn't been any comment yet out of the State Department regarding the announcements yesterday that this was the, the tactic that the authorities seem to be taking. And it is a very worrying sign the delay in meeting with Dosu and the sudden appearance of 100 complaints against 100 candidates, which would clearly be enough to undermine the ruling majority of the, of the NLD and tip things back toward the military. Mr. Green, uh, Ambassador Green, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that or, or, or not. I, I agree with uh, what you've just heard, and I think also part of that is to significantly weigh in with the positives, the carrot of what can be possible should these steps be taken. Uh, Burma, obviously, in the days immediately after the election, enjoyed praise from many quarters and, and uh, uh, well-deserved for the technical challenge of administering four different ballots in many places. But it, it also has to be clear that that can go away rather quickly if they don't follow through with the promises that have been made and the promise of democracy. And so I think it is engagement and clarity and uh, making it clear what expectations are and what the possibilities are uh, as long as they follow through with the significant commitments that have been made. Thank you. And obviously, as we discussed prior to, to the hearing, we talked about the concern throughout the region of uh, a Paris uh, type of terrorist act spreading to places around the world, including Southeast Asia. And I guess the question I have is, what, I guess, accelerator is there that, uh, is, is there an accelerator in Southeast Asia? As we talk about the struggles that some are having toward democracy, maybe some are slipping away from uh, democracy or freedoms and more corruption. Uh, is there an accelerator in the region that would either amplify the direction, the speed of the direction they take for the direction of good, you know, pro-democracy efforts, um, and conversely, the direction that it could take uh, in the wrong direction. What could speed up more government control, less freedom, uh, less opportunity to the to the reforms to corruption and transparencies that we've talked about today. So, I mean, is it terrorism? Is it financial? Is it natural disaster? What what is the big accelerator in the region that that could either good or bad speed the direction? 
I was going to just talk a little bit about Indonesia and, and uh, Malaysia that, that have had estimates are between 800 and 1,000 or so fighters go. Some are family members. Uh, that's, so, I, you know, you maybe saw this morning, today, earlier today, uh, the uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Home Affairs Minister of Malaysia signed an agreement with Ambassador Joe Yoon on increased access to U.S. databases on, on bad actors, quote-unquote terrorists. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that kind of thing uh, is, is in the U.S. interest as well as their interest. I'm not sure that those kind of agreements make much difference as accelerators. Uh, the, at the same time, uh, the U.S. is working with Malaysia on, on maritime domain awareness for, for uh, the South China Sea, which is in Malaysia's interest and in the U.S. interest. So they've sort of happening on a parallel track. How you press Malaysia it's, it's really tough. Uh, some of it can be done in the TPP, and the U.S. has said many, uh, has given them many warnings or, or lot, uh, urged them to get going and, and, and abandon the Sedition Act and things like that. But right now, Najib, the prime minister, is fighting for his political life, and it's not, you know, it's going to be tough to turn this around. With, with Prime Minister Najib and in Burma, as well as in other places, I think that appeals to sectarianism are a danger. And, and I think that um, in Malaysia in particular, it's quite a dangerous situation. It could be potentially a dangerous situation, as we've seen in Burma. Um, it wasn't necessarily productive politically, but it, it is dangerous to the society, which will have long-term effects. And I think that's true in Malaysia because of the structural way that Malaysia's governance system is set up, as well as its economic and political and gen more general system, and how certain groups are privileged and, and others are not, and the appeal to the Bumiputra in, in Malaysia is, is one of Najib's last tools that he has in his dis at his disposal. If I, if I can, in, in, in a slightly longer term view, one of the most important accelerators of uh, democratic transition is success. So I think, uh, you know, pushing and reinforcing success in Indonesia to help them take on their great challenges, and the same thing is true with Burma, depending upon how these next several months go, those countries succeeding in their democratic transition, that's one of the most important things and one of the most important messages that we can send throughout that region. Remember, there is a counter-narrative in that region that comes from China, that democracy can't work in this continent, in this region. They, there's this constant refrain that what we are talking about are merely Western ideas, and they don't work in Asian societies. Success in Indonesia, uh, you know, hopefully uh, the beginning of success in Burma, that's what we need to be thinking about, making significant investments in the NLD so they have the governing capacity to take on the significant challenges that they face. Remember, there's an entrenched bureaucracy there that, 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 that grew up and operated in an entirely different mindset. They're going to need a lot of assistance and help from friends like the United States of America to help them, and their success is the most important thing that we can see. Mr. Ebert, I saw you raise your hand. I realized one other thing I should have added, and that is uh, Senator Cardin talked about the TPP uh, uh, lever. Uh, it, um, it, with, with Malaysia, the TPP is really important because they want to get out of the middle income trap. They see this as more access to the U.S.-Japan markets, gives them a balance versus China market. and. That the U.S. had some leverage through the, uh, using the TPP in the in the TTIP in the trafficking, 
uh, on the trafficking issue. They didn't do as enough, I would argue, but, but uh, maybe to, as congressmen, uh, start, as senators start dealing with uh, passing the TPP to raise concerns about human rights and, and democracy issues in Malaysia, that at least the bells will go off that maybe we won't be included. So that is another lever that you guys might be able to use. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Well, again, let me, um, let me welcome our, our three members of the panel, but I particularly want to um, welcome Ambassador Green, uh, my former colleague in the House of Representatives. Uh, uh, Ambassador Green had an incredible reputation in the House in regards to the Millennium Development Act and the PEPFAR program, so it's good to see there's life after Congress, so it's nice to have you, <laughs> nice to have you here. Uh, I, I, you mentioned, Mr. Ambassador, Western ideas, and in 1975, the Soviet Union, to show that they were truly a democratic state in the eyes of the globe, uh, joined us in establishing the Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, now the OSCE, uh, the implementing arm being the Helsinki Commission. It was signed in Helsinki, and when one mentions Helsinki, they think human rights. It's broader than human rights, but they do believe human rights, and there are global standards that were agreed to by all nations by consensus that are human rights, good governance, religious tolerance, uh, all the good universal values that we hold so dear. They're not Western values. These right. are universal values. So no one is trying to, to, to import Western values to Southeast Asia. We want respect for universal values. And the OSCE is a consensus organization. There's no ability to, to enforce uh, other than through uh, putting a, a spotlight on problems and, and using uh, conciliatory ways to try to get uh, progress made. It would seem to me that such an organization would be very helpful in Southeast Asia. I know we have organizations. We have ASEAN. ASEAN's been is taking on an ambitious uh, project on the code of conduct for the, the China Seas. If it, if it works, it'll be an incredibly valuable contribution to regional stability. But it would seem to me that uh, it would be advantageous for us to try to strengthen either ASEAN or a regional organization to uh, uh, judge each other's conduct by universal values, including good governance. And uh, is this possible, and would it make sense if we could get it done? Uh, Senator, I could not agree more. I think one of the successes that we've seen with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, uh, which is primarily for economic reasons applicable to Africa, much more so than, than perhaps this region, is, is the fact that we have clear objective indicators that we have indicated we believe are essential for prosperity and stability in the long run. Uh, when you take a look at the discussions that take place in regional settings on that continent, there is a great deal of looking around to see how one's neighbor is doing, good and bad. And I think that strengthening regional approaches, uh, which will require assistance from us to get going, I think is a very important idea. I think it's a good one uh, because it reinforces what you've said to begin with. These are obviously not Western ideals, and we should push back forcefully anybody who tries to say otherwise. Working to strengthen regional institutions, peer-to-peer -peer organizations, 
organizations in which leaders and former leaders can come uh, and meet and help build capacity in emerging governments and talk about the challenges that they faced. It's a very important idea, and I think it is one worth pursuing. Thanks, Ms. Curry. Um, uh, thank you for raising this issue, Ranking Member Cardin, because it is an important issue. Um, there have been several efforts over the past several decades to try to build organizations along the lines of the Helsinki process in Asia, and they have never really gotten very far. Um, I think that probably the biggest barrier is China and the role that they play in constraining organizations from forming a democracy-focused um, grouping at the, at the official level, and the governments of even Indonesia, South Korea, Japan, even our most democratic, long-standing democracy allies can be reluctant to be seen as bandwagoning against China in that way in the region. And unless and until we could get China to agree in the way that the Russians agreed as part of the OSCE process, it will be very challenging to do that. But in the absence of official entities that have been created in the region, um, civil society has really raced ahead. And so you've seen regional civil society build up their own kind of networks and their own kind of institutions that are really shaping how the region responds to these challenges. Developmental authoritarian narratives still have a lot of credence at the elite level across the region, and China certainly promotes that, but at the grassroots level, that narrative is not nearly as popular, and when people are given the opportunity to reject it and vote for democratic systems, they inevitably they largely follow that path. So I think you know we're in an evolutionary period there. The opportunity is not yet ripe for that kind of regional organization because of China's role, but I think it's good to keep thinking about how we build that kind of cooperation. Well, of course, in 1975, the Soviet Union was the dominant factor on the CSCE. Uh, it included Canada and the United States, and we're not necessarily considered part of Europe. Uh, so it, it seems to me, South, even if you look just at Southeast Asia, uh, dominant players in development of Southeast Asia include the United States and China, and Russia, by the way. They're, they're certainly dominant players, so the, it has to be part of the equation. And as we, we do have a seat at the table of ASEAN, it's not a full seat, but we have a seat, and we have a, a full uh, mission there, because we recognize the importance uh, to the United States. Uh, Senator, if I can add on to uh, what Kelly has said, which I agree with, uh, two other um, factors. On the positive side, uh, South China Sea and some of the issues that have been raised, they're also serving as a reminder to some of these nations about the high price of uh, China's expansionist uh, philosophy and ideology. It has also caused some of these nations to have conversations with us on a number of fronts that maybe would have happened a little more uh, reluctantly. But secondly, she makes a very important point about civil society, the role civil society is playing and seeking to play, which is why looking at the enabling an environment, the regulations, the registration requirements in each of these countries is terrifically important. We should make it as a central part of our diplomatic push to ensure that there is an opening for civil society to speak 
with citizens and to act as a link between citizens and their government. We're seeing in too many places in the world and in this region where central governments are seeking to close down civil society, which is one of the greatest threats to any democratic progress. Yes. Uh, I just want to throw out the, the two bodies that are actually active on human rights within ASEAN. Uh, the ASEAN itself has a human rights organization that it's set up, but it's like everything else in ASEAN, it's consensus driven. And so Hung Sen of Cambodia can, can stop some of, some of the more interesting discussions that Indonesia, the Philippines uh, would have liked to have. And then the second organization is the Bali Forum, which has annual meetings in Bali, bringing people from around the region, but that's Indonesia-driven. Uh, some, some countries, like the Philippines, are encouraging or supportive, but everybody else is basically holding off. So there are forums that we maybe could consider working with and encouraging, but the consensus nature of ASEAN makes some of the stuff tough. It's, it's interesting. Consensus uh, certainly uh, do, is, presents challenge. There's no question when one country can prevent um, action from being taken. It was the reason why Russia, Soviet Union went forward with the, uh, with the Helsinki final accords. On the other hand, it does allow you to bring everyone together in a less intimidating setting. And it's amazing, particularly I would think in Southeast Asia, putting a spotlight on a country could be a pretty strong way to get progress made. The other thing about the process, it gives legitimacy to any of the participating countries to raise questions in other countries. You had the right to do that. And that's a powerful right, even in a consensus organization. So I, I think there's some, some major benefit that can be had if we could set up that type of structure. And my recommendation is don't try to reinvent the wheel. Just use the Helsinki model. And uh, we have looked at that uh, in other regions. Uh, we've looked at it in the Middle East. We've looked at it in, in Asia. I mean, uh, we, we're challenged in our own hemisphere. Uh, uh, so there's, there's, there's ways of, of trying to improve regional uh, cooperation by recognizing universal values. Again, not Western values, but universal values. I, I don't want this panel to go without raising the Burma election issue and the Rohingya uh, being disqualified from voting. Uh, how do you have, how do you even give a stamp of approval when so many people were denied the opportunity because of their ethnic uh, backgrounds, because their ethnic communities denied the right to vote? To me, that has to be, uh, you can never put a stamp of approval on this election under those circumstances. I would agree with you wholeheartedly, um, Mr. Cardin, that the disenfranchisement of the Rohingya, the fact that there will not be a Muslim um, member of parliament for the first time in Burma's history, these are serious um, societal problems. They're not just political problems. And the, the failure, or it wasn't even a failure, the intentional effort to disenfranchise the Rohingya people. And it was troubling, actually, with your previous panel to have um, Mr. Busby self-correct and not refer to the, and he initially called the Rohingya citizens and then self-corrected and referred to them as residents. And I hope that that is not the position of the United States government, that the Rohingya are mere residents of Burma, because you know, maybe it is not for us to decide, but we certainly shouldn't be sitting up here and making that decision um, ad hoc on a congressional panel. Um, and this is something that I would like to see the lame duck government address in their time in office and not dump on Aung San Suu Kyi's plate, but 
given the way that they politicized this issue and attempted to turn it into a political wedge issue to make things difficult for her, I don't see that happening. I appreciate you correcting the record here. I agree with what your statement was. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and I want to thank you all for being here today, uh, for appearing before us uh, and providing your testimony and responses. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business next Monday, November 23rd, including for members to submit questions for the record. Uh, we ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible. This is your homework assignment. Uh, your responses will also be made part of the record. With the thanks of the committee, uh, and I do, uh, both of Senator Card and I uh, do deeply thank you for this. Uh, this hearing is now adjourned.